Hey coach, welcome to the Baskopedia podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hart. On today's episode, we have coach Terry Battenberg, a veteran 34-year coach who discusses the transition offense with us and how anyone can run the break. This episode is sponsored by System Basketball, where we have courses, clinics, and playbook products to help coaches all around the world. Remember coaches, without a system, it's hard to win. Everybody, welcome to the Baskopedia podcast. I have Coach Terry Battenberg today, uh, a retired high school, college. Did you? What else have you coached, Coach? Because I know it was high school and college. Did you get higher than than college? No, I never did any pro. No, not at all. Okay. What? But I'll take credit for some fifth grade and eighth grade games. <laughs> gotcha. Um, He's written some books on post-play and transition basketball. We're going to talk today a little bit about some post-play and fast-break basketball because that's what I've come to know him over the years through Twitter and his website and looking at a lot of his stuff. Um, Coach, why the fast-break? What, what, what is it about the fast-break that intrigued you? Well, I started coaching a long time ago in 1969, to tell you the truth, when I was a senior in college. And all the years that I played basketball, high school and college were pretty much slow down type situations. I always marveled at the type of teams that would get up and down the court and score a lot of points. I thought that was a fun way to play. And I know with my friends, that's how we would play on the weekends, whenever we'd just get out and play on the outdoor courts or whatever. So it was a system that I liked. And when I started coaching, I said, that's the way I want to coach. I want to let my kids have a good time like I did. So the first book I ever read was called Blitz Basketball. And it was by Alex Samaria. And he had a a system where he played 10 guys and subbed a lot and really got them down the court. And so I did that with my first team. The first team I coached was a JV team at Jesuit High School in Sacramento, California. And I happened to have 10 decent players. So we did that system. I just kind of bought into it at that point, and I thought it was fun because it allowed more people to play. It allowed more people to score, and the players seemed to enjoy it as much as I did when I played that system. So I stuck with it, and through the years, just tried to find other mentors and other systems to perfect what I was doing. And eventually, I think I ended up with a pretty good system 35 years later. Okay, so you you just take us a little bit back through your your coaching career. You started in high school, correct? Yes. Jesuit high school. Jesuit up in Sacramento, California. Right. Yeah. Okay. I was, I was hired as a JV coach while I was still in college. I didn't play basketball my senior year, mainly because I set the bench too much my junior year, but I had an offer to, to coach. And I, I felt that was time, a good offer, a good opportunity because Jesuit high school is really a good school. And so that's how I started as JV coach while I was 21 years old. What are the keys to a good fast break? Well, several keys. Um, You have to have people that are halfway decent shape. And that's something we can talk a little bit about later that I have a philosophy on how to get people in shape. You also 
have to be able to teach it and know what you're teaching as a coach. I think that's the most important part. You want your players to be in shape, but you have to know what you're going to teach them because they have to learn what to do. So the important parts would be to pass the ball ahead when somebody's open. That's, that's number one to me. Uh, secondly is to be a good rebounding team. And that means both ends of the court because without rebounds, you eliminate most of the best chances for fast breaks. And without offensive rebounds, you're eliminating some chances of when you have an advantage on the boards and can follow up on a missed shot and score. So rebounding is important. And then I think defense is also very, very important because turnovers create the easiest fast breaks and the numbered fast breaks where you get the advantage all the time. So I always stress the idea that we got to be in shape. We have to play great defense and we have to be a good rebounding team plus sharing the ball and passing it ahead. So those are the main things that I try to teach and get the kids to do. And if they will do all that, we usually have a pretty good base to start the season. So you said defense was a key. Um, do you, do you pair it with the press or do you just play man to man full court? What do you, what, what do you do with your, or is it based upon how deep you are, how many players you play with your, with your transition? Is it, what's your philosophy? Yeah. Before the shot clock came in, in California, I was pretty much of a pressing coach because a lot of teams would play slow down and in order to play a quicker tempo. The press seemed to create more opportunities to do that. After the shot clock came in, I found that everybody else was picking up the pace a little bit more and we didn't need to waste as much energy into full court pressing. We could save it and use it to have more of an offensive transition team. So for me, that allowed me to evolve from a coach who basically would fast break only on turnovers and defensive rebounds to a coach who would now have his team look to not only score on turnovers and rebounds, but also if the other team scored, we would also run a secondary break. In other words, we'd still come up the court really hard and look to get, a, get some numbers or at least get a mismatch somewhere before the defense could set up by the opponents. So that was kind of the, the change for me and the, the kind of uh, way I looked at it is uh, the shot clock made things different. Still use the press once in a while, mainly as a change up, um, sometimes against a team that is not very good against the pressure just to get the game going in the right direction. And of course, you need a press late in the game if you happen to be down. So I'm more of a situational pressing type coach now as opposed to a total game coach pressing. You being from California, I'm sure you know, um, I grew up in this era. I was in high school of the Loyola Marymount team uh, with Paul Westhead and Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball. And a famous quote he would say, and I know you're a little bit, you're, you you run like a Carolina secondary break, you said, correct? Yeah, very similar to that, yes. His, Roy, his Roy thing was, that I've always remembered was, if you give them a plan B, they're going to take it. So he would... He didn't, maybe I'm wrong, but he didn't really teach a secondary. He only had his primary and he was trying to get shots up in seven seconds. How, how do you get them to run and try to get that? If when I've, I've had the same problem when you do like put in like a secondary action, they don't want to run as hard and they want to get to the secondary action. What are some tips or keys that you did to make them want to get run pass the ball ahead and get those primary options. 
Well, the primary option to me, in my language anyway, the primary break is off of steals and off of missed shots. The secondary action is off of a made shot. In other words, it's more of a delayed break. Some people call it a delayed break because the defense has a better chance to get back. And sometimes what we would do on our secondary break is take the ball out quickly and have our, I'll say my two man, which is the right side lane runner. He would just take off hard and we'd look for him deep. And the reason we would look for him deep is because teams that would full court press or were a little bit slow at getting back, we just throw over the top of basically a home run pass and get a quick score that way now and then. It also, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, worked great to do that against a pressing team because if the safety didn't get back right away, we could always have that particular player open deep and throw deep to him. So that's one way you do it. And the next way is you get it in quickly to your point guard and then up the sideline to that very same person in the right lane, or you could go up the left side to the left lane because we do have a lane runner on both of the outside lanes. And if you pass an inlet on one side and then quickly up the other side, sometimes you get numbers that direction too, or you might get the uh, postman running down the middle and get him open cutting to the basket because his defender's coming back late. The idea is no matter what the situation, you get it in and you run your lanes, the same lanes that you always run every time, whether it's a make or a miss. And so you're consistently attacking the same way no matter what the situation is. And when you get down there, if you have numbers, you know when to score. If you have somebody open that can uh, take advantage of a one-on-one -on -one situation, then you go for that. And if not, then you have some quick hitter plays that come after that. Okay. What's the ideal number of players to, or did you play nine, 10, or did you only go like eight? How deep did you go? Before the shot clock, um, 10 pretty much was my basis because that was how that original book I told you about blitz basketball, that was what he did. So I did that for many years. Obviously there were some years where we were not 10 deep and we got into league. We'd have to cut it down to eight. Um, generally I try to get eight. I had a tough time, probably the best fast breaking team I ever had was about, um, you know, Right now, about 14 years ago, 2007, is my best fast-breaking team. It was a high school team at Union Mine High School. And we were only basically six deep and stretching it to be seven deep. So we didn't press much, but we had the best fast-break I've ever had because those kids, they just, they just knew how to run the lanes. Um, I think ideal number is eight. It's great if you have 10. If you have 10, you probably want to press a little bit more. With, with eight, you can pretty much get by with uh, fast breaking transition offensively and defensively very well and, and have enough depth with eight that if somebody's sick or injured or in foul trouble, you're still in good shape. It, it was really tough the year I had only six or seven. Um, sometimes we just had to march time a little bit to, to get people back in there and, and adjust our games. But that particular team I told you about in 07, they were really good at that. They were a senior group that had done it for three years and and uh, they were very successful at it. Um, the inbound pass to the point guard, did you teach butt to the sideline, a C-cut? How did you teach them to get, get the ball quickly in and up the floor? Butt to the sideline on rebounds. On uh, If you were getting pressured, it would be, a, I guess you said a C-cut. We'd call it a banana cut on ours. Yeah. Uh, if you're being pressured, we would do that. Um, Usually, 
they would just get their butt to the sideline for the outlet on rebounds. And, and we wanted them to get wide and out on the side because that way they could see up the sideline much better. Designated <clears throat> inbounder, correct? Yes, we we always did have a what we call the point guard or the number one player. And, and then, he's the guy he's the guy that would get the ball and <coughs> excuse me. And um, we would have a designated man take the ball out of bounds all the time. That would be a, what we called our four man. The only flipping of positions would be on a rebound, right? Uh if if the big forward got it, the center I mean, if the center got it, the big four would, would run to the block? Yes, between the two bigs, the four and the five, uh, whichever one got out first would take the middle lane and the other one would trail. So if five got the rebound, four more than likely would get out first. However, when, let's say, one, two, or three got the rebound, it could be a toss-up as between four and five who could get out first, and they had to read each other. First guy out took the middle lane hard, and the second guy would trail the play. I was reading through some of your stuff, and one of the questions that people ask you probably all the time is, how do you get your players to run the lanes, right? That's probably a, a common thing when you're a transition coach. Um, and one of your answers is drill it every day. Is there any specific drills that you use to drill that every day? I have basically three sets of drills that I rotate. Um, in my book, you can run with anyone. I go through each of those and that's probably the best way to, to explain it is to see all those. But I came up with one set of drills that I learned from Ralph Miller long ago when I was assistant coach for him at Oregon state. That was my first set of drills that I used. And through the years, I came up with a second set and a third set just so that we'd have some, some, uh, you know, different looks, I guess you could say. I know when I worked for Ralph Miller, he had the same drills every day. And I mean, every day, same drills every day, three lane rush, figure eight, three on two, two on one. And we did those every day. And that was his fast breaking system. And I was very pleased to be able to work for him to learn all this and learn his system. But through the years, I found that I wanted to have a little bit more variety. And so I broke down what we were going to do on the break and some, into some of the fundamentals that were important. And I invented some more of my own drills. And that caused the three sets. And in the three sets, they take about 10 minutes of practice time a day. But I rotate through set one one day, set two another day, set three another day. I just keep rotating throughout the season. So we're always working on those fundamentals. We're always running hard. And we're always running lanes and improving our fast break opportunities, whether it's five on five or three on two or three on three or two on one. It doesn't matter what the situation is. We're constantly working on that for 10 minutes every day. Okay. And then another one was, which is unique. I mean, I've heard it talking to system coaches and other people, but short practices. Um, what, how, why is that important to have to shorten up the practices? I'm not sure what you mean by short practices. You mean less than two hours? Well, you, on a paper, on a on a little outline I have here, it says how to how to get players to run their lanes hard, and then number nine, you put short practices. So maybe you said maybe by having shorter practices, they're more willing to run. I, they're fresher legs. Is that maybe the? Um, <clears throat> well, I'm not sure what you're reading. So, um, short practices. I never go over two hours. Okay. Um, some of the schools that I had 
In fact, the, the school that I mentioned earlier, Union Mine High School, we had one gym and we were limited to an hour and a half except on weekends because there were so many teams had to use the one gym. So that was a shortened practice. But I, I always felt that two hours was a good time limit for us. I never went over two hours. An hour and a half is, it's doable, but I felt more comfortable going with two hours. What I, what I really mean by shorten things is shorten the drills, shorten what you do, go in short increments or short segments. In other words, don't spend 45 minutes scrimmaging. Don't spend 45 minutes on your half court offense. Don't spend 45 minutes on your defense. Break in and do different things in 10 minute increments or even five. And that's what I tried to do in my practices. If in, uh, in my book, you can run with anyone. There's sample practices in there at the back and it shows my drills and how I rotate through things. So each of the fast break things take five to 10 minutes and defense we work on for 10 minutes, rebounding for 10 minutes various drills and so it's always hopping it's always changing it's quick and we're always moving but we never do one thing to bore you for 45 minutes of doing just one thing so that led me next question about the practice part is so say it's a normal two-hour practice that most people would do in a high school type setting um how much how much time devoted to the fast break part you said you did things in segments to be efficient at what you wanted to do, how much time did you spend on it daily? Well, various forms of covering the fast break because just about everything we did was full court. Um, I would say out of the two hours, we were doing things full court, probably an hour, close to an hour and a half of that two hours. So about three quarters of the practice is going up and down the court. And that's how you get in shape. It, it takes good habits. And everything I did, it, it changed every 10 minutes, but that 10 minutes was full effort, full court. And then there might be some kind of a break. You know, you might have free throw shooting or you might have a half court defensive drill or a rebounding drill that was half court. And then you go back to do the next drill and it's going to be full court. And for 10 minutes, you're going hard up and back when it's your turn. So it was constantly transition basketball at a full speed or close to a full speed. There was never any lagging behind and going short effort. And I feel that you can do that when you when you ask the kids to do something for 10 minutes. And obviously, they're taking turns at it. They're not just constantly going for 10 minutes. But you can do that and have them go full speed and, and demand that they do that. And it becomes a habit after a while. And when we do um, uh, what we call... ODO, which stands for offense, defense, offense. That's my favorite drill. That's my form of scrimmage drill. Offense, defense, offense. You're going hard on offense, retreat on defense. You're playing defense and hard on offense. So you're going up and back and up on the court. And it's hard as you can go and it starts over again. And then you go again. The other team does up and back and up. And everything that we do is always full speed, full effort. And if it's a time when we're say following a game that we just had the night before and gave a great effort and we have to rest up well then that's when you cut down to an hour and a half practice and that's when you have maybe more uh, scout time or more shooting time or free throw work or discussion whatever just to give them a shorter time to recover but a normal practice is always fast tempo there's no laziness there's no cruising there's no slow motion i just as soon send them home as to have them go slow because if you practice going slow 
you get really good at going slow. And I want them to practice it going full speed so they get really good at going full speed. The, the point guard play is probably crucial, correct, in, in the fast break system. Um, needs to be able to get the ball up the floor via the pass probably more than the dribble. Um, is there any reads that you that you taught? Like, did he go up the street, across the street? Was there anything that you taught specifically to help a point guard? Yes, uh, the point guard, very important position. They got to have some kind of ball handling skills, of course. But I always found that a point guard who was more willing to pass the ball than dribble the ball was more effective in this system. You don't need to be a fancy dribbler and have 900 dribble moves. You just need to be able to read the court and see where the pass needs to go. Your job as a point guard is to get the ball ahead to somebody else. If you have to dribble it up, well, then you pretty much that's our last option. We want to get an organization where we're getting the ball up the court. So the read for our point guard is whether he gets the outlet on the left or the right sideline. His read is up the sideline first without a dribble. If the sideline is not available, covered or not there for some reason, his next look is to the middle for our rim runner, which is whichever big gets out first and runs down the middle of the court. He's looking there as he dribbles towards the middle of the court, towards basically the center circle, we'll say. And he's looking to see if he can put the ball over the top to the rim runner. His third look is across to the other wing running the other sideline. So he has three options now, sideline, middle, and cross. And that's the three that we're looking for. And he has to be just like a quarterback in football to read those options. His first look is sideline. His second look is middle over the top to the big. Third look is to cross it to the other side. And the last option is to dribble it up to one side or the other. And usually it's to the opposite side. Now, the reason for all that is if you can't throw it up the side, the first option, that means the defense is over there already. And the defense always tends to cheat to the ball side. So if the point guard has the ball on, let's say, the right side, and he cannot pass it up the right side, there must be some defense on the right side. So your next look is the middle. Well, most of the defense will run down the middle, so that could be covered unless they're slow getting back. If they're slow getting back, especially the big man's defender, that gives us a chance to throw it over the top. The third option is the most important, and this is the one that most coaches don't use, most teams don't use. And this is the one I got from Roy Williams at North Carolina about 20 years ago. And actually, he was at Kansas when I got it. Um, and that is to look to cross to the other side. So you'll take one, maybe two dribbles, and you're hoping to pitch it across to the other side, the other side wing. And when that happens, now we have a situation where the defense, as we said earlier, was all on one side or in the middle. Very few people are on the weak side, the far side. So when you do throw it to the other side on the cross, that opens up the other wingman for a chance to go to the basket for a layup or dunk. It opens it up for him to get the ball and then look for the rim runner to switch sides and post up. And it forces the defense to shift back over. So that gets us into what we would call our early offense after that. And that's the reads our point guard has to have. What I don't like is a point guard who gets the ball on the outlet or from out of bounds, immediately puts it on the floor. He needs to catch with his back to the sideline, 
pivot, turn and look up the sideline before he puts the ball on the floor. But he needs to do it kind of in one motion. Catch, turn, look, be ready to go because your next look is middle and the next look after that is cross. So that's kind of what we, uh, we call that the secret weapon. The secret weapon is crossing to the other side. You can't go up the side, which most teams are good at doing. If you can't pitch over the top, which a lot of teams are doing nowadays, then we want you to do the secret weapon, which is cross to the other side. And that allows you to shift everything and get into a potential secondary or early offense. Um, transition basketball, in my opinion, has kind of gone downhill in like NCAA college basketball. I, I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s high school watching Loyola Marymount, Michigan, Billy Tubbs, Oklahoma, uh, UNLV. Why do you think it's kind of died out? Is it is it the advent of the ball screen and everybody needs to put ball screens in and walk it up and be like the NBA? Is it, why do you think the game slowed down so much? Because it, it seemed like it was a lot faster tempo back in the day. Well, there's still some good running teams, so I don't know if I'm going to completely agree with you. Yes, there is more screen and roll stuff, and there's there's more of, as you said, the, the uh, pound and slam them type things. What I've found has happened in the recent years is a lot more three-point shooting. And that's really evolved in the last 10 years, especially. But with the three-point shot coming in, it took a while for that to come along. And, and um, it took a while for players to get to the point where they could have more of them that could shoot it well. So that's been a more important part of a game. But as far as the teams that we're talking about nowadays, Gonzaga, who was really good last year, I mean, they just had a great fast break. And they're pretty good again this year. Michigan State always has a good fast break. North Carolina usually does. They didn't so much in the last couple of years. I thought they got away from what Roy used to do in the past. But uh, there are teams that still do run pretty well. I just don't see them looking to run as much. And part of that, having coached a little bit Division One myself, um, is that it's really tough nowadays with – with um, the schedules that they play there's a lot of travel involved there's a, there's a, as you said a lot of more rock and suck of defensive this um the uh, defense that they used at wisconsin that's uh, slowing things down with all the help stuff Backline. has uh, really changed things around too a little bit defensively but it's still there are teams that run well there still are teams that run well and if, and if you think back to when Loyola Marymount, UNLV, those teams were were special and unique at that time. And I think Gonzaga and Michigan State and North Carolina are unique for this time. So I don't know that I agree with you saying that things have slowed down now. I think there's always been slow down basketball, but the three-point shot is what's kind of changed things more, in my opinion. And it's also changed how people run the break. Um, you know, you study the game still, and you – you are active on Twitter and stuff with the two-sided break, which is uh, people running more than not, not, not sending a player into the post. It's basically a five-out transition break. Is that the advent of basically the, the three-point line, in your opinion, why that's come to a lot of popularity? Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Because uh, you – in the past, you, you could get away with, like in high school ball, you could get away with a 6'2 postman. 
if he was strong and and uh, he would be the kind of guy that could just take on people and draw fouls and that was a good way to go well now every 6'2 kid wants to shoot three we didn't have that back before the three-point shot and now they all if they're 6'10 they want to shoot the three <laughs> so that's just kind of the way the game has evolved and coaches hear about analytics they want to take advantage of the three-point shot and i think all that's good i take advantage of it too on our break but i take advantage of it by making sure that the guys that shoot the three are the guys that can make the three in my opinion there's too many guys shooting threes that don't make a high enough percentage and if i coached college basketball again i would not do anything differently than i'm doing or that i did five years ago when i was coaching I would not do anything differently. We'd still look to go into a postman and we'd still run the inside outside game. If it goes inside he's got a quick one-on-one -on -one move and he's got a good shot. Fine. If he doesn't have a good shot, he's looking for somebody on the perimeter. That's the inside outside game. And if you're a good shooter, you're going to shoot it then. But there's way too many high school players that are shooting and I'm, I'm watching, I'm seeing air balls. I'm seeing off the backboard. It's not even close. And we didn't have that before the three-point shot because if you couldn't shoot from outside, you were not shooting outside. You were getting into where you could make some shots. So the three-point shot has changed the game quite a bit. I do see some things changing recently. There's more bigs that are getting the ball inside. You can look at Purdue, Illinois. A couple of those teams have really big guys. You see the kid at Gonzaga now that's 7-1, so he's going to get the ball inside, but he's also a good outside player. And there are more bigger kids that are doing things on the inside. And if you don't have the bigs, then I don't have any problem with playing five out basketball. I think that's good as long as the five guys can all shoot it. I'm seeing a little bit of a rejuvenation of post play. Um, I call them Gonzaga Southwest, Arizona. That's right. Um, exactly. I was watching them play um, who they, who they beat Michigan. Michigan, right? Michigan's yep. another team that kind of emphasizes the post a little bit. Um, they have a, a good bit, big man too. Yes, does it a little bit more with with ball screen, dive them, and then throw back action, and then try and hit the post player that way. They're not just putting them on the block, battling, if you will. Um, um, NBA wise, over the years, you if you, I assume you watched it. The 80s were the golden years, and a myth of transition basketball is you got to be quick and you got to be athletic. Um, one of the best teams I ever saw run was the 86 Celtics, and they had uh, Bird, McHale, and Parrish. Those guys would not win a track against anybody, but like you said, they had a point guard that could get the ball, pass down the floor, intelligent players. Um, what do you say to people that say you have to have athletes to run the break? Well, as I keep mentioning about my book, you can run with anyone. That's, that's the whole purpose. I, I never really in my high school teams. Well, maybe a couple of times had really good athletes depth wise, but generally you're lucky to have one or two places I coached. Mm -hmm. I found that we still were able to run because the competition that we faced basically had the same athletes we had. So all we had to do is run better than they did. And the consistency level is what's important. You don't have to be quick. You need to be consistent in a running game. Every time you get a rebound, you got to run your lane. 
every time if you want to run if you want to run on uh, made shots ball goes in a basket you run your lane and that's my philosophy you get a steal you run your lane all that has to be done and it has to be habit and that's basically why i mentioned my practices with the 10 minute increments that we keep repeating keep repeating till it becomes habit and i can definitely tell you that by by the end of a season with a new team everybody had the habit of running when they played for me it just was automatic. They ran one way, they ran the other way. It was offensive transition, it was defensive transition. They did. They knew nothing else. It was habit, good habit. And a lot of schools don't have that. I was just watching a, a video last night that was put on Twitter of two local high school teams playing. And I could not believe the one team had absolutely no defensive transition. There were kids that never crossed the half-court line. They didn't even bother. And I thought, how could the coach allow that to happen? I just I don't get it. But they obviously didn't have the habit of defensive transition along with they didn't even show much offensive transition. So it's what you teach in practice and it's how you teach it. And I know that Celtics team you mentioned with Bird and McHale and all them, those guys were consistent. They ran their lanes all the time and they passed the ball to each other and they were very unselfish. That was a great team to watch. It was a real good uh, mention that you have there. Also the Golden State Warriors right now, I mean, yeah, you got Curry that shoots a lot of threes, but they pass the ball and they get a lot of layups too. So their fast break is pretty good. And there's a lot of good examples out there in professional basketball of fast breaking teams. Um, you mentioned running lanes. So uh, question that steel situation. Um, I know you say run your lanes, but t- traditionally on a number break, it, the two would run the right side, three would run the left side. In a steal situation, are they just finding the nearest sideline and going, or are you making them go right left down their exact lanes? Or is it no, just read? Two and the other thing too about number break is we have the we talked to you earlier about the four and the five, whichever one gets out first, runs the middle and the other one trails. Okay. Well, with my team, I mentioned earlier I coached in fifth grade or an eighth grade team one time. That was my son's teams. We did the same break. We did the numbered break and and I taught the kids to run two to the right, three to the left. But at the high school level, once you've got that down and you've you've taught them to run a lane and you've got them to run wide, now it's time to get a little more intricate. And that's when you come with, okay, I'm on this side. I'm the three man, but I'm on the right side defensively. I'm there first. So the two man sees the three man took his lane. He just goes and runs the other lane so they can switch lanes. In other words, two and three can switch lanes. It's whoever gets there first, just like the four and the five, whoever gets out first, the other one trails. So they read each other. The only guy that does the same thing every time is the one the point guard because he's getting the outlet pass or he's getting the inlet pass from out of bounds. And those are some of the, the things that you do after you get the lane running and the lane running wide and all that stuff down. Now you can start coming into this changing up and filling in. You ask about on a steal. If you get a steal, pretty much you're looking at a two on one or three on two situation. (laughs) Yeah. So you don't really have to do anything, but just spread yourself out and get to the basket. A lot of times you just get a steal and you're just going one on one or one on zero. You explained it it better by saying defensively on the right side or whatever. Um, yeah. So, what you're saying? So, two man, three man gets the rebound. Is it an automatic outlet to the one, or can they become their own outlet and go? 
two and three get the rebound. They're looking for one. If they don't see him, they do what we call a bust out. And they're looking for him again because they're looking for him or they're looking for anybody up the court. Their job is to do exactly what the one would do if they put the ball on the floor. They're looking for an outlet. If it's not there, they put it on the floor and they're heading up court looking to pitch the ball ahead to whichever lane has been filled. If the one is on the side where he's supposed to be, he probably would get an outlet. If he's covered, he would release and go up the side and let the two or the three just bust out with it and take off one or two dribbles looking to get it ahead. He might get it to the, let's say the two got the rebound, he might get it to the one up the right side, or he might get it to the three going to the left side, or he might be able to go over the top to the five or the four, whoever filled the middle lane. But he'll just take it on his own and he'll do the exact same thing a one would do, and that is pitch it ahead to somebody who's open. Don't dribble it all the way up if you don't have to. Well, you mentioned Ralph Miller. We talked about Sonny Allen. Any other major influences on your fast break philosophy? Yeah, I had a few of them through the years. Um, I think Ralph, uh, Roy Williams obviously was, was pretty big. I, I learned a lot from him in the early 2000s that kind of put my fast break over the top for me anyway. Jerry Tarkanian, he ran the number break when he was in Vegas. I watched a couple of their teams play and then I went to two clinics that he ran down there in Vegas in the 90 and 91 seasons and watched him go over all of his uh, fast breaks so I think Sonny Allen was probably the first one I saw doing the numbered break and the Tarkanian was second and Roy Williams was probably third I would suggest for coaches nowadays as I mentioned earlier to watch Gonzaga because they really have a nice fast break and Michigan State runs a good one too so those are two of them that I point out if you want to watch a good fast-breaking team. Coach, you mentioned your book several times. Can you can you let the listeners know where they can find that? Is it still in print? Yes, it's it's printed on Amazon. Basically, it's a print-on-demand type situation where you can order it over Amazon and they'll send you out a copy. You can find out the information on it if you see um, on my Twitter account. There's information. If you go to my website, there's my blog and there's also my Twitter account. And there's also a section called books where you can order it online. But everything on uh, you can run with anyone. That book, the Fast Break book is is through Amazon and, and it will be printed for several more years, hopefully. <laughs> awesome, Coach. Appreciate you joining me today and giving all your insight on transition offense. Thanks for all you did do. For, for coaches and myself for studying for the last few years and, and learning from you. So I appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. All righty. Hey, Coach. Thanks for joining me on this episode with Coach Terry Battenberg. Hope you enjoyed the content. If you did, make sure to Check out some of our past episodes with system coaches and other coaches discussing transition offense. And remember, check out our products at systembasketball.com. We have courses, clinics, and playbooks that can help you out with your X's and O's and philosophy, drills, and organization of practices. So we'll, we'll see you on the next episode.